0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The
1: criminal knew exactly the right language to get to someone. And yes, it may only work you know, 10%. It may even only work 1%. But if you hit a million people, 1% is a really big number.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Later The show. We've got my interview with Andre McGregor from TLDR Capital. He's a former FBI agent, and we'll be discussing some of the scams he's been seeing online. And we are back. Joe, before we get into our stories for this week, we got some follow up from a listener. Yep. What do we have here this week?
2: So, listener Eric sent us a correction. Yeah. Last week, I incorrectly said that if you make a, a URL, that is www.dhl.com at some malicious site or Joe's malicious site. Right. that's an abuse of email. It is not an abuse of an email URL. It is an abuse of a deprecated URL-based HTTP authentication. Okay. And Eric goes on to say, back when dinosaurs roamed the internet, which <laughs> right. I think is a very clever right. way of saying things. Yeah. Some websites would let you authenticate with username colon password at the website name using the authentication at the HTTP level. Now, most websites don't do this. Most websites actually never did this. You would you would enter a username and a password, and that happened in the web application. You wouldn't be using the web server to authenticate. You'd right. be using the application behind the web server. Okay. But if you wanted to avoid the login prompt from an HTTP authentication, you could use this. Two things about this. Yeah. Number one, I first started learning about web development in the late 90s. Okay. Okay? So this was around then. Nobody ever discussed this. We never had this. I didn't know about this until late into the 2000s when I was taking a class on actually just design because my web design needed work and actually still needs work.
0: But. So the, this methodology had already fallen out of favor at that right. point where it wasn't even covered. Yep.
2: And the second thing is that the... Either that or you went to a substandard school for application development. No, I think but it just never, <laughs> <laughs> it never... It wasn't really school. It was me working with other people. I actually, see. I did take some training. But in the training, nobody ever discussed it. They always discussed. Here's how you build an application for authentication. Okay, It was never used HTTP authentication. Interesting. The other thing is, this has been deprecated since 2005. Okay. Okay. We both tried this in Chrome and it worked. Right. So a modern browser, 13 years later, is still susceptible to this. And this is the kind of thing hackers do. They find these obscure pieces of, of specifications that nobody knows about And they exploit them. So I think it's time for web browser developers to stop using this in their web browsers and stop recognizing URLs with at symbols as valid URLs for HTTP.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I I wonder if there's some sort of under the hood reason why they still do. There might be. uh, There might be. I might be calling for something that can't
2: technically be done.
0: Yeah. Well, Eric, thanks for sending that in. Uh, We we love it when you all uh, keep us straight or add to the conversation. So we do appreciate that.
2: And uh, you never stop learning.
0: That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's jump in with our stories this week. Um, my story is a variation on, on something we've heard before. And it's interesting because it, it touches on a couple things that I haven't heard before. So this is pretty much the standard Microsoft tech support scam mm-hmm. where someone calls. In this case, this story comes from a local uh, TV affiliate, ABC 11 out of uh, Durham, North Carolina. And there was a, an elderly couple, a woman named Amelia, who was using her computer. And an alert popped up and it said, don't continue to use your computer and don't shut it down. Hmm. So she and her husband, Al, they immediately called the phone number on the screen. Oh, no. And here's where it gets interesting. The number said to be from the company that they subscribe to virus protection services from. Mm-hmm. So these guys were doing the right thing. They had some, some virus, antivirus installed on the computer. So the person on the other end of the phone says that this company was shutting down because of the fires in California, that their facilities had been lost to the fires, that they were shutting down and they were going to refund their money. So Al said that he thought this sounded Legit enough. Right. And they were going to give him a refund of $318. So Al gave the person on the phone remote access to his computer. Right. So they could put the money right in his bank. This is where perhaps Al's judgment went off the rails a little bit. They got into his uh, Chase bank account through his computer. And instead of refunding the $318, they refunded $3,188. Under the Chase account. Huh. So instead of 318, it was 3188. Right. And Al could see this in his account on his computer. And the person on the other end of the phone got all worked up and said, oh my gosh, I I made a mistake. Uh, This is terrible. My boss is going to be mad at me and I'm probably going to lose my job because I put all this money in your account. And he told Al that he couldn't reverse the charges. So instead, wait for it. Uh He asked Al and his wife to go buy some Walmart gift cards to refund the difference. Okay. So Al and his wife did this. They went to Walmart. They got $2,700 worth of gift cards. And they sent this person on the other end of the phone the uh, numbers for the gift cards. Right. So they thought that was that. The next day, Al sees that there's a couple more payments for the same amount, 3188 in his account. They go back to Walmart, purchased $6,200 worth of gift cards, sent the numbers to the man who called them. Huh.
2: This sounds like they're being used as money mules.
0: Well, what's interesting is they eventually realized that the money was gone, of course, and these large amounts of money weren't actually being put into their accounts. They were being shuffled around from accounts that they had. So it was was all their money all the time. Oh. And this bad guy on the other end, once he had access to their bank account, he was just shifting money from, you know, checking to savings or from oh, retirement account to, right? So they see these bits of money showing up and they think this is being put in here. They go and get buy the gift cards. Okay, so the transfer is coming from inside the house, right? Exactly. I'll it's use like your that, phrase. like that old horror movie. Right. It's coming from inside the house, right? So the bad guys aren't actually sending them any money. They just have control of the bank account. They're making it look like there's money being put in, but it's really just being put in from the couple's other existing accounts, right? And so, of course, once the bad guys are gone, they're gone. The Walmart gift cards, the money's spent, and uh, this couple's out almost nine thousand dollars. Wow. So, um, obviously, uh, a couple of red flags here. You know, you never give over control of your computer to someone who you don't know. Right. And goodness gracious, never your bank account information. Absolutely not. And, of course, if anyone asks for gift card payments, that's a big red flag as well. It should be. Yep. So, a hard lesson for these folks to learn. But some interesting things here. I thought both the use of the California fire... Right. It was an interesting way to get in there. And then the shuffling of the money around, the existing money around,
2: that's uh, that's one I hadn't heard before. Yeah, that's a very clever, albeit absolutely just diabolical, it, the person that did this to this couple is is a horrible person. Yeah. But that is an interesting way to go about getting somebody to think that you've sent them the wrong amount of money. It's just use their own money to fool them. Yeah. So that's my story. Joe, what do you have this week? So I was listening to our friends over at Smashing Security. Yep. And they had a guest on Scott Helm who talked about a tweet from somebody called Infosec Sherpa. Yeah. At uh, on Twitter. Yeah, I follow her on Twitter. Do you? Okay. Yep. yep, she's good. She had a tweet about the most diabolical phishing test ever. Yeah. The email comes out. It's a phishing test that gets sent out to all the employees of a company and it reads something like, "Are you tired of receiving all our phishing tests?" Click here to unsubscribe, and if you click the unsubscribe link, you fail the phishing test, because it's a phishing mm, email. It doesn't seem very sporting of it, them. No, it doesn't seem very sporting, but, you know, it is a phishing test. They're going to work how they're going to work, but <laughs> this got me thinking. Do you ever click on the unsubscribe links in spam emails? Uh, You know,
0: no, I don't anymore.
2: Now, I will click
0: on an unsubscribe from... A legit company who I have previously done business with.
2: Yes. I just clicked on an unsubscribe link from Google uh, right. okay. a couple days ago. They were sending me all kinds of stuff because I bought the Pixel phone and it was getting annoying. So I turned it off. Right. But I have never advocated clicking on the unsubscribe links because I've always thought that this was just an opportunity for somebody to, one, validate that the email is correct. Right. And two, validate that it's in use. Yep. Right. That this is a valid email and I use it.
0: That is exactly the rationale that I use for not clicking on them myself.
2: It would be very easy for a spammer to generate their own email list by using this technique. They Mm -hmm. could just generate random email addresses for a domain or or follow a pattern that they know about a domain and then spam the entire domain. And whoever clicks on the unsubscribe link, I know that those people are willing to listen to me. And then I have a list of really high quality email addresses.
0: Right. These are hot addresses that are in use. Yep. And people care about
2: them. Right. So I've always assumed that this was the case for 20 years or so and never actually looked into it. (laughs) Yeah, why would we do that? So I did some digging. (laughs) I mean, I mean a simple Google search. Ah, And (laughs) I found found this article from Naked Security at Sophos. Oh, yeah. And they said five things about the unsubscribe link. And the first one is what I just said, that you confirm that the email is valid and in use. The second one is you've confirmed that you opened the email. Mm, mm -hmm, Right? mm -hmm. Because you have to open the email to get to the link. Right. If to unsubscribe, you have to send an email. The message says if you want to unsubscribe, reply with the word unsubscribe. Yeah. Well, that contains all kinds of metadata that you might not want to disclose to somebody. Yeah. If you click on an unsubscribe link and it opens a browser that allows them to set cookies on your browser. So now they have tracking information on your browser about you. And finally, of course, and this is the one that is, you know, the elephant in the room, the link can of course be just malicious. You could right. just start some kind of bad chain of events for you. The important thing is to remember that the unsubscribe link is just that. It's just a link. It could do anything. Your best bet is to just mark the email as spam, which automatically deletes it. Almost all of the web-based email providers now have this feature. If you have a, a good corporate email, then they have that feature as well. Maybe you don't, but just delete the emails. Don't unsubscribe from
0: us. It's remarkable to me uh, what a good job that the email providers do with spam. I, very little of that generic spam really makes it through anymore. It That's seems true. like they they really up their game on that. Spam filtering
2: is pretty good right now.
0: Yeah, it really is. It really is. All right, well it's uh, it's good advice. So let's move on. It's time for our catch of the day. Joe, this week's catch of the day was uh, sent to us by a listener named Jacob, and he says, Hey guys, my roommate was applying for a job. She submitted her application through the process, and then she got a response telling her that the job she applied for was filled. However, there was a different one available. How convenient. Mm -hmm. She didn't fall for it. Jacob says, I've never seen this particular type of scam attempted before, so I thought I'd forward it to you guys. Uh, Love the show. Cheers from Canada. And uh, the email goes like this. Dear applicant, we received your application regarding the available job at UConn Business School Canada job, but the initial position has been taken as you have not made the shortlist, but there is an urgent personal assistant position at this time with one of our directors. Director says, As a director at Yukon School of Business with focus on other international business, the majority of my clients are out of the country. I need help with my errands because I am constantly out of town. As a matter of fact, I am currently on a business trip to Tokyo, Japan at this time. I will prepay you in advance to do my shopping, bill payments, and have the items sent to my P.O. box. I will pick the items up from the post office when I return from Japan second week in December. How soon can you start? I will email you the list and pictures of what to shop for so you can do the shopping at any leading store close to you. I'll pay you $400 for your service for 10 flexible hours every week. I am prepared to pay for mileage and travel expenses. Clear set of instructions for each task and sufficient funds to cover all errands will be provided. I would love to meet with you upon my return to discuss the possibility of making this job long term under me with a better pay packet as this is a trial period and not an office position to see how competent you are until my return. Let me know if you can do the job. Hmm. What do you think, Joe? (laughs)
2: Well, the broken English here says volumes to me. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's not, we've certainly seen worse, but yeah, there yeah. are definitely some mistakes in here. Yeah,
2: it is. I like how it says, director says, instead of putting the person's name, it literally says, director says. Yeah. Uh, and it, of course, this person is out of town. Of course. Can't be reached, far right. away. And they need you to spend money, which they promise they'll repay you. That's okay. right. Yeah, yeah. No, no, thank you. Yeah. I'm glad your friend did not fall for this, Jacob. But again, as we've talked about, you know,
0: this is one of those things where they I guess somehow they got access to this list of people who had applied for jobs.
2: Yeah. How did they get this information?
0: Who knows? But they know that
2: someone is maybe in a, a pickle. You know, right.
0: they, they, they need work. Yeah.
2: If you're looking for a job, then you're already in the, the subcategory of people that might be willing to do something. Like I said before, I spent back in 2010, I spent time looking for a job. And, you know, it gets a little disheartening at some point in time. You start latching on to things that might not be the best thing for you. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, thanks, Jacob, for sending that in. That is our catch of the day. After the break, we're going to hear my interview with Andre McGregor from TLDR Capital. He's a former FBI agent. We'll be discussing some of the scams he's been seeing online. Joe, I uh, recently spoke with Andre McGregor from TLDR Capital, love that name. Love the name. (laughs) So he is a former FBI agent, uh, had quite a successful career with them, and so we're gonna be discussing some of the stuff that he's tracking online. Here's my interview with Andre McGregor.
1: So we're still struggling to really understand the strength and, quite frankly, concern that the internet can bring us from a social engineering perspective, mainly because there's still a generational gap. When I was a FBI agent for several years out in New York, I spent a a short stint at the Internet Crime Complaint Center. And that's essentially where people would go if they had a a specific crime or type Google into the search engine. And that's the first link you come to. And (laughs) it was interesting because you would see there's eight million records of people being scammed or attempted to be scammed. And the narrative was always the same, which was the adversary or the criminal knew exactly the right language to get to someone. And yes, it may only work you know, 10%, it may even only work 1%. But if you hit a million people, 1% is a really big number. And so when you look at a social engineering scam, you're really just going after people and their emotions and sort of their state of mind. In many ways, nothing's changed from the days of telephone scams. And nothing's changed from the days of mail scams, except Mm -hmm. for now it's on the internet. Now,
0: you know, you bring up a really interesting point, which is this generational gap that I think uh, certainly there's the perception that that exists. Are we seeing that in reality? I mean, is is it the uh, the older generation? Are they the ones who have the bullseye on their back? It's not
1: only the the older generation. I mean, you know, everyone is a is a target. You know, it's the same reason why uh, spear phishing or, or phishing attacks that you know purport to be a legitimate email, when in fact it's malware or it's asking you to send something, still can work to do wire fraud scams. of some of the largest companies, if someone is expecting a uh, communication, someone is used to a certain process, and and the criminal knows that they interject themselves in a sort of man in the middle attack and essentially get them to commit this you know, crime un- unwittingly. From the generational side, what's interesting, uh, especially during my time at, at IC3, having talked to victims that were north of uh, 50 years old, I heard statements from them when they said, it just looked real. They had logos and icons that that made it seem like it was exactly you know who they said they were and the company or the person and so I had no reason to suspect that it wasn't real or this was the more interesting statement that one of the older victims had said I figured the internet was regulated and this was not going to be a problem if I sent money to them and so when you think about that uh, we've gone away from that in-person connection For us to feel comfortable handing over a hundred dollars right i mean an actual hundred dollar bill is something that you wouldn't feel comfortable just sort of you know giving it to anyone because you you earn that money um it's one of the main reasons why casinos immediately switch that money out to be chips so that people mentally are not thinking about cash (laughs) when they're playing blackjack Mm -hmm. they're thinking about little little plastic things that are not as important but when you start moving over into the telephone and now you start moving into the internet it's just so easy to, to transfer money that uh, you wouldn't necessarily do to somebody if you were had to actually give them uh, $1,000 in, in, in currency in your hand.
0: The generation that's coming up today, I, I suppose we could call them the digital natives. Do you think they have a, a more natural skepticism toward this sort of thing? Have, have they been trained to be a little more careful?
1: I would actually say that the skepticism still exists with the older generation because they've lived life longer. To know that you can't trust everyone, Hmm. I think the difference with the digital natives is that they understand technology better. So some of the scams that are easier to detect, they just immediately brush off, knowing that that wouldn't be legitimate because of the aspects around the actual fraud that's being perpetrated. But I do think that, especially when you look at some of the social engineering Twitter scams with Stan Crypto and giving, you know, ETH away, you know, an older generation would say, well, there's nothing for free. Or mm-hmm. if it seems too good, it probably is. And that's just living life. Whereas the younger generation says, hey, I, I want ETH or I have FOMO and I, I, I want to be part of the mix and, and maybe more likely to, to actually give money. So it's interesting, depending on the scam, the digital native might have an upper hand or the older the older individuals might have an upper hand.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting insight. And and I mean, why do you suppose that places like Twitter are such a fertile ground for these sorts of schemes?
1: Quite frankly, it's because of the reach that you can get to, you know, millions of people very, very quickly. It's the same, again, uh, you know, if you look at scams, very much like love, nothing really changes in, you know, the last 10 years, 50 years or 100 years. Hmm. It's still the same methodology of how a criminal needs to attack a victim, right? And I need to make the decision of am I being making a targeted attack? And if I'm going to do a targeted attack, I want to have, you know, a high yield. So hopefully that one person I'm targeting, I get a million or $10 million out of that. Whereas if I'm going off a volume, then I'm going to target a million people or 10 million people and hoping that I get a dollar. And hopefully that scam works. So it it doesn't matter if it's Twitter or Facebook or even, or even email. I'm going after a large population. What's interesting about Twitter is that I can purport to be someone else legitimate that other people have already provided trust, whether blind or otherwise, in the, the words of that person and use their fame and fortune to leverage my scam. So that's hmm. essentially what, what Twitter is doing is, you know, someone that has a million followers Uh, those followers are following them for a reason and they're, they're, they're waiting for any, any, anything that they say. So if I can have the same picture, the same name, and also recognize that people probably are not looking at the handle and say, oh, it's just off by a character, Mm -hmm. or they may not even be looking at the number of followers and saying, oh, wait, why does this account only have, you know, 10 followers? (laughs) Whereas the legitimate, uh, account has, you know, 2.5 million followers. Uh, people, uh, unfortunately, their eyes don't necessarily look at everything. They're used to just sort of looking at what makes sense, and that's how they get scammed.
0: I think most of us have this natural impulse to want to trust.
1: That is life, right? I mean, that's 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 the idea of family. That's the idea of community. That's the idea of, of religion. It all comes back to, to trusting people. But we're trusting people in a world where we don't actually meet them. And it's not to say that we can't do it, and that's one of the reasons why you know blockchain has created – you know, such a fervor over the last couple of years is the idea of being able to bring trust to a trustless world of the, mm. of the internet. And, you know, it, it's, you know, we have a global economy. What makes our global economy so strong right now is that we still have inherent trust in large companies like a Google or a Facebook or an Exxon or an IBM or even a, a central government because they've, they've rooted their trust in centuries, if not of, of time with their people. But now you have these nascent companies, these nascent people that you want to trust, but you've never met them. And right. so, in a normal case, you'd want to meet them. But how do you meet someone that's a uh, halfway around the globe? That's inherently our problem with the internet. And so, to be able to have you know proper identification systems that are, are linked with the government that are secure on the blockchain and allow for verification across multiple industries is a step for us to be able to start trusting people in a a trustless world.
0: Now, one of the, uh, the things that you do is you're a uh, technical consultant for the TV show Mr. Robot. And I'm curious uh, when it comes to how they handle things like social engineering scams in Hollywood, do you find that they're coming at these from a from a realistic point of view or do you find yourself having to uh, having to correct them pretty regularly?
1: I uh, have a very good question. So I, I, I do enjoy the time that I get to, to work on the, the scripts and to be on set for Mr. Robot. Uh, what's, what's fantastic about Mr. Robot in comparison to some of the other uh, hacking shows that are on TV, You know, Sam, the creator, doesn't want to cut corners. He recognizes that you know we got 42 minutes, so you can't necessarily show all the details of what you would do mm. for a particular hack. But we don't want to skirt something to make it seem like it's movie magic. So it's really on us as consultants and technologists to be able to create a hack that is legitimate, that would work, and then show the salient parts of that hack so that not only the uh, viewer that just wants to enjoy the show can watch it and enjoy the scene – but also the technophiles that are going to pause the screen and look at our code and right. uh, you know hopefully not find an errant semicolon or an extra space uh <laughs> we'll be able to say well yeah like if you did execute that that's exactly how that would work and right. so it's nice because you know this is what we sort of need in our digital age so if, if you look at let's look at medicine for example mm. uh, the pivotal moment in tech in in television for medicine was er that was a, a show where essentially, you know, we finally, you know, had proper medical terminology, we were not trying to skirt on on process. And, you know, while yes, there were some doctors (laughs) that probably said, we wouldn't necessarily do it like that. And and obviously, you're not going to do live CPR on someone, you're still going to run through the processes as you would. And you can see that over time, people started to accept the fact that, okay, now new shows like Chicago Med are even more realistic uh, in medicine. So I like to think that Mr. Robot is like ER and we're only just the beginning stages of what you're going to see other television shows show when it comes to hacking or just, you know, techniques and technology.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point, because when you sweat the details like that, you really can have uh, almost an educational component to entertainment.
1: What I found interesting as well is that I... We'll speak to audiences, you know, government officials, and just the same statement I keep hearing over and over, which is, I tell coworkers or I tell my family to watch the show so that they finally either understand what I do every day. Or they finally start to understand some of the scams that they're, they're seeing. And so when we spend time on Mr. Robot showing how to root an Android phone, uh, and its kernel or, you know, a social engineering scam and being able to, you know, clone a, an ID card or send a a phishing email. It makes it more real because you think all these people that are are working in offices, they they take an annual information security training and that training, maybe they understand everything or maybe they only understand parts of it. But to actually watch it on television and be able to say, oh, that's what that is. Now I get it. Only further benefits us uh, as a society from an education perspective.
2: Interesting guy, huh, Joe? Yeah, I like that interview a lot. A couple of things he said resonated with me. One, they know the language when the scam's happening, mm-hmm. they, they know how to get in. And actually, I think this is indicative of what he said later in the interview when you asked him about the generation gap. That really, being over the age of 50 doesn't make you any more susceptible to scams. It just changes the kind of scam you're susceptible to. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. The same with being younger. Right. Right. So, a younger person might be more susceptible to the fear of missing out. Uh, FOMO that he called it and an older person might be more susceptible to a scam that has technical information, right? So when he talks about the scams where they they say they know the language the reason that's the case is because these scams are the ones that are successful. Yeah. If you have a scam that's unsuccessful, it's because some red flag has gone off, maybe because they don't know the language. They refine them over time. They figure out
0: what works and what doesn't, and then they share that information with their fellow scammers.
2: Yep. One of the words of the victims here resonated with me. I figured the internet was regulated. Mm Mm-hmm. Nobody should figure that. Nobody should ever think that. <laughs> the internet is is a vast, unregulated domain that is dumpster fire. It's a dumpster <laughs> fire. <right? laughs> it's a dumpster fire, Joe.
0: <laughs> it's amazing that any of us make it out alive. Right. Every day <laughs>
2: yeah. after I get off the internet, whatever I'm doing, I have to go take a shower. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> it's trust is the foundation of family, society, and religion. He says. Yeah. Uh, Interesting that he points out religion because we've talked about scams or it had catch-of-the-day samples, where people say, I'm a good Christian. Right. Right? They're appealing to your religion, whatever it is. And I think this would work regardless of what your religion is, you know? Yeah,
0: just I'm a person of faith. And right. so, uh, yeah, yeah. So we have that in common, regardless right. of what your faith is. They're um, trying
2: to build rapport with you. Mm-hmm. Chris Hadnagy talks about this in his, in his book, The Art of Social Engineering, where you try to become a member of their tribe right. by getting in there and say, hey, look, we're the same religion,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting.
2: All right. Well, thanks to the Johns Hopkins
0: University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about what they're up to at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of DataTribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.